Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host, Gemma, and today I'm going to be sharing the adventures of Ginny, the guinea fowl hen, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about guinea fowl as a species and why you may or may not want some on your homestead. First things first, I'm going to switch things up just a little bit this week and instead of starting with homestead updates, I'm going to start with hive updates. And the first thing I want to talk about is a recent hive jive episode. So as I've mentioned many times before, I'm a huge fan of the hive jive podcast hosted by John Swan and Ken Milam. And a recent episode, which was just John on his own, episode 101, uh, 101, covered the practice of telling the bees. And this is a custom that involves telling your bees and talking to your colonies about major events in the beekeeper's family life. It can cover anything from births to marriages and in particular death. Now, there's a long history of this tradition. It is, uh, it seems to have originated in Europe, particularly the British Isles, but it has been practiced in other countries throughout Europe and it seems to have spread from there into North America and a few other countries. Now, this episode, um, John offers a great overview of what I consider to be a beautiful tradition, while also sharing about a recent personal loss. I found it to be incredibly moving, and I recommend that you give it a listen. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts, or I will drop a link to it in the episode description and on my website, and you can just click on that and listen directly there. Once again, that's the Hive Jive episode 101. Now, as for my Hive updates here on the homestead, in my previous episode, I mentioned that I had attempted to mark my only surviving colonies queen and I made a complete mess of things and I accidentally ended up with a queen whose wings and um, abdomen or thorax was entirely covered with white paint and I was very very worried that her colony might reject her because uh, sometimes the paint can cover up their pheromones or that she might just die from that paint. I didn't know what the repercussions would be. Now I did hang around obviously to keep an eye on things and hope that I wouldn't see signs of the girls turning against her which I did not but I was very eager to get back in there as soon as I could to make sure that all was well. And I'm extremely relieved to report that um, she is alive and well. She's laying eggs like a champ. And this colony continues to build up very nicely. I am incredibly grateful that my mistake did not harm not only a beautiful queen, but also my only surviving queen from last year. I have had some drama in the apiary. If you follow me on Instagram, you would have seen that I received a package of bees with a Carniolan queen and almost all of the bees in the package, I'd say a good 75 to 85% were dead and the remaining bees appeared to be dying. Now, when I received the package, the queen was alive. The bad news on top of that bad news was that um, it was quite cold the day that they arrived and that evening it got even colder and I was installing them in my top bar hive which is brand new so there's no comb in there for them to hold on to they just have to cluster around the queen cage. Now I did put some um, fondant I kind of smeared it on around the queen cage and on the bar to give them something to eat while they were hanging on and I had a feeder section of this top bar hive set up but obviously they wouldn't be able to access that until things warmed up. So I just had to hope that the remaining bees could keep themselves warm enough, keep the queen warm enough overnight and survive until the next day when the temperatures would rise. Sadly, by the following morning, all the remaining bees were dead and I thought the queen had died as well. But when I was bringing her inside, she must have warmed up and she started to move around. 
So acting quickly, I placed her in my still queenless nucleus colony, gave her 24 hours and then peeked back in. And when I placed her in the nuke, I really didn't think she was going to make it. Um, I've never seen a queen that week before. So I assumed that she would die. To my complete surprise and joy, not only was she alive, but they had already eaten through the candy cork to let her out and they had clearly accepted her. So what killed the package bees? At first, I assumed that they had starved to death as the syrup can that they are shipped with was completely empty. However, spraying the survivors with syrup didn't seem to help. Um, I did this when it was like warm enough to spritz them because I didn't want to chill them anymore. Um, but sadly, of the ones that I spritzed, they really didn't recover. Maybe a handful of them were well enough to fly, but not very far. Um, and what was worse is that I found that the pile of what I assumed were dead bees from the package weren't actually dead. If you brushed them gently, they would start to move, but they couldn't eat and they couldn't fly. Um, even moving them into the sunshine when we had nice day made no difference. These bees were basically on the verge of death and they just wouldn't respond at all unless they were poked. It was really, really terrible to see. And I can assume or I can guess that it might be end stage starvation, just their little bodies reaching a point where they just can't eat. They're not strong enough to consume anything. But it also made me wonder if they'd been exposed to some kind of chemical or something harmful purely because I've seen this weird disoriented behavior and appearing dead unless you touch them on bees that have been um, stricken by pesticides. So I'm really not sure exactly what happened here, but I have decided I will not be getting package bees in future, at least not in the way that I did this year. Um, basically, they come in from the south, they go to the cellar, the seller inspects them and then the seller ships them on to me. So two times they go through the mail. I'm not going to do that. I had very good luck last year with my Saskatraz package, which is why I foolishly assumed it would be okay this year. What I didn't take into account is the fact that the USPS has been struggling extremely hard through the pandemic and through basically sabotage with getting rid of sorting machines and all kinds of things. Um, I, I should have realized that they it wasn't the best idea. So anyway, I put a claim in through USPS and I have received confirmation that they've received it and they're looking into it and I'm waiting to hear back. I'm not super optimistic. I know that with any live animal, um, you know, any kind of shipping carrier is going to try real hard not to reimburse you. But this package was insured by the seller. So I'm hoping that I get at least some amount of what I spent back. Now, as for my Carniolan queen who survived all this terrible journey and weird death of all her followers, I checked on her after about a week and I found two worrying things inside the nucleus colony where I had placed her. The first was no eggs and the second were capped queen cells. Now the bees are still clearly accepting of her. She has a little group of her attendants, but she does not appear to be laying. And it seems as if the colony is prepared to replace her. Now, after a little bit of reading um, various forums and sort of, you know, Facebook groups and comments from other beekeepers, a lot of anecdata, basically, I decided to give her another week as I did find comments about how, you know, severely weakened queens, queens that have gone through a lot of stress or have been close to starving can take two weeks or more to recover before they are fit enough to start laying eggs again. So what I decided to do is I removed the frame with the queen cells and I added it to a queenless split that I had made from my primary colony, which I will talk about in just a second. 
I then gave the nucleus colony another frame of eggs and I'm going to see what they do. So it's entirely possible that they will pull more queen cells and if they do I'm going to let them do whatever it is they have in mind. If the bees end up killing the carniolan queen and replacing her with a virgin queen that they raised themselves I'm okay with that. I always feel that the bees know things that I just can't know and so I'm going to trust their judgment here but I am sentimental when it comes to queens so I wanted to give this girl one more shot to succeed to show me that she can but if she can't then I have to let the bees replace her. So the split of my overwinter colony In my previous episode, I discussed how I pulled frames for a nuke and then kind of second guessed myself and thought maybe I should have just done a full split. Well, keeping an eye on them, they are building up very, very well. I didn't see any signs that they were in the process of preparing to swarm. My Saskatraz, Ohio queen is laying eggs still. They haven't pulled any swarm cells, but they are making a lot of queen cups, some on the bottom of the frame, some on the middle of the frames. Their population is booming. There's a lot of brood in there. They're bringing in um, a little bit of nectar. They have lots of pollen. They're basically looking really, really good. So what I decided to do was a split. And as a reminder for anyone um, or anyone who's never heard the term before, it's exactly what it sounds like. You split a big healthy colony in two. Now the important part when you're doing a split, in my opinion, is to make sure that the part of the colony, the box that you move to a new location, is the one that has the existing queen in it. That then mimics a swarm where the mother queen leaves with 50 plus percent of the colony as we learned in all of the Thomas Seeley books that I've recently been covering. And then the remaining half of the colony is in the original position. So the foragers will come home to that colony. After a few days, the queen's pheromone will have vanished from the colony, but there's still brood pheromone. So they stay there and they will start raising new queens. Now, what I did with the part of the colony that is now queenless is I gave them the queen cells from the nuke I spritzed a couple of frames with a sugar syrup and I also smoked a little bit. I'm basically trying to cover up the chances of them detecting kind of the new colonies, queens, pheromones and maybe reacting aggressively to any bees left on that frame. Now the chances are that they might just tear those queen cells down that I gave them or they might say in their little bee brains. Let's see what happens. So I'm going to just give them some time. There were two capped queen cells and one uncapped that I left for them. So we're going to have to see what happens. Now, I was able to track down another package of bees um, despite the lateness of the season. It's just a package of Italian bees from Georgia that I picked up in Medina, which is about a 30 minute drive away. The queen's a little small, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything bad. Yes, there have been studies that say that really big queens with those like huge booties tend to be more productive, but let's see. Once again, the weather did not cooperate. I brought the package home during a nice day. I got them into the new top bar hive again. Uh, But by the following morning, it was in the 30s and snowing and sleeting. So I ran out, wrapped the hive as best as I could because it's a top bar hive. So the wraps that I have are designed for Langstroths, but I had something that would work. And... I basically just had to hope that they could get through the cold temperatures. It also absolutely bucketed it down that day. um, So there's no chance that they would be leaving the cluster anyway. But I was worried with the cold and the wet and the fact that they have no comb to hold on to. They have no fondant that they can cling to and eat. I was worried that they would perish. 
Thankfully, however, they seem to have survived. The majority of them seem to have survived. They basically clustered around the queen cage. So when I checked on them, I gave them a little spritz with some sugar syrup. I actually harvested some comb from my primary colony and kind of smushed it onto some of the top bar top bars, sorry, and then kind of sprayed that with sugar syrup. And then the bees were happily eating that when I was closing things up. And with the warmer temperatures that we're having during the day, they will be able to smell and then move towards the food that I've left for them. It's too cold at night to put a liquid feeder in any of the hives. We're still having night temperatures consistently under 45 degrees Fahrenheit. So they have a winter patty in there. They have uh, some fondant that I made that's literally just sugar and syrup. And I also spritzed a little bit of pollen in there so they have everything they need. And I've left the wrap on the hive just to give them a little extra insulation while our weather is chilly in the evenings and not super warm during the day. In other bee news, I've been in touch with my mentee who managed to get her very challenging colony through this hard winter She had a very rough first year with queenlessness, a laying worker, bees that didn't seem to want to draw comb, and then the high mite count that most of us had in the fall, and then this really awful winter that we just got through. So I'm super impressed by her skills and her commitment. She's done a really fabulous job. Uh, Thankfully, the colony was building itself up so well in the spring that she recently split it and she's anxiously watching the queenless colony because she's a little concerned that there's so many bees in there that they might time the emerging queen so that the virgins can swarm. Now it's possible and we discussed a couple of options that she might try such as making a nucleus colony with some of the queen cells, choosing to just keep maybe two or three of the biggest queen cells, things like that. But the weather's been such a huge impediment for actually getting into any hive and working lately that she's just sort of watching and waiting. But still I'm super proud of what she's doing and beekeeping is very very hard work and she's definitely committed to doing it so it's nice to see that she is succeeding overall I feel like here in this area we're off to a really rough start we had that beautiful period of time where it was 80 degrees in the morning and I think in the morning 80 degrees during the day and 50 to 60 at night and I think we all got a little ahead of ourselves and assumed that we were going to have an early start to spring but it hasn't really been that way it was a nice period but it quickly reverted to snow and rain and so a lot of us are having a trickier time I'm also down to my last box of honey jars that I filled last year so I'm very anxious about making sure my colonies are big enough and healthy enough for me to harvest some honey because I'm going to be absolutely crushed if I have to go and buy local honey elsewhere so we shall see I just love my own honey so much but uh, fingers crossed things will only get better from here all right so homestead updates as I just kind of said, the regular Northeast Ohio spring weather arrived, which means that it's gray, it's been cold, and it's been raining absolute buckets for days on end. My garden flooded, as it always does. Um, The drainage ditch is helping with that. So my whole backyard, the what's in the fence line, was basically a swimming pool. And then by the following morning, it stopped raining overnight. And the following morning, it had reduced down by a good 75%, which is much faster than usual. So the drainage is helping with that. One of the things that cracks me up every year is that when our garden floods, some of the wild mallard ducks that live out the back come into the yard and just start paddling around. So that was very, very fun. Um, I've actually been keeping a closer eye on our wild duck visitors because 
this year we have wood ducks in the back in that swamp area and I'm very excited about this wood ducks are rarer than you know mallards and some of those other duck species that they've been in decline for a while what's actually interesting is that one of the biggest issues for wood ducks aside from lack of habitat is European starlings so what I didn't know until I did a little bit of reading is that wood ducks nest actually in hollows of trees they're not ground nesters they nest up in a hollow of a tree and European starlings will often detect purposely seek out wood duck nests go in there and basically punch holes peck holes through the eggs and then they build on top of the nest that's already been made by the wood ducks and they then fight the wood ducks when they come back and try and get into their nest and even though wood ducks are much much bigger than European starlings they're much more docile and in response they tend to give up quickly and fly off and the European starlings take over their nest so that was very interesting to know We do have big flocks of European starlings here that move through, but thankfully they don't really stick around. So I'm cautiously optimistic that my little wood duck pair is going to be able to raise some ducklings this year. And I'm keeping a close eye on them because I would love, love, love to see ducklings out the back. In chicken news, things are much the same here. Pepper Jack the rooster is still attacking my shins and boots whenever he can. So I carry the garden rake around with me whenever I'm out the back because then I can kind of fend him off without a protracted battle of feet. He kicks me, I gently boot him, he kicks me again and so on and so forth. Some days have definitely been worse than others and I'm just tired of chasing him down and then picking him up because it doesn't work anymore. It doesn't matter how long I carry him, whether I cradle him like a baby, whether I briefly dip him upside down or whether I just kind of carry him normally with his head tucked under my arm and his body supported on my forearm. It doesn't matter. The minute I put him down, he will just attack me again. And I have enough bruises that I'm sick of him. Today, when I was out there doing some cleaning of the special needs coop, I had to keep a careful eye on him and I turned my back for too long and he went after me. And so he ended up locked in the coop until I could finish what I was doing. And he was very unhappy and he made some noises that I really feel that I should record and then sell to Hollywood for dinosaur movies because it's absolutely bonkers the sounds that he comes up with but I basically was like this is it guy you need to be locked away if you can't behave and I was able to finish my work in peace some of the girls in his flock are wearing hen saddles now these are little aprons that go over their back they're held on by elastic loops that go over the wings and they protect their skin from the rooster's claws when he mounts them when a hen's overbred she loses the feathers on her back where the rooster stands on her and when she loses the feathers it exposes her delicate skin to his claws and then you have some issues with open wounds which can potentially get quite bad now what's interesting about this overmating that I'm seeing is because it means that he has favorites he has girls that he likes to mate with more than others And what I find interesting in it is that his favourites have no correlation to their position within the flock when it comes to the other hens. So for instance, Cracker, my white leghorn, who was queen bitch before the rooster came along, she is still really high on the pecking order. She sleeps snuggled up in pride of place next to Pepper Jack on the highest roost at night. Um, The... On the other side of him is usually one of the ginger girls. And before she passed, um, Agnes used to be up there as well. And then often Cheddar, the hen that he was found with, would be nearby, but she could be easily chased off. So despite this pecking order amongst the hens, I would have expected Cracker because she's 
got that high position next to him every night to be one of his favourites, but she isn't. Instead, Bobby, my Easter egger, who's sort of middle of the pecking order, is. Cheddar, she's definitely lowest on the pecking order. And now Raven, who is... um, my other black hen, I'm not sure what she's mixed with because she's a barnyard mix. So I'm thinking like maybe Cochin or Australor mixed up. It's hard to say. But she's also sort of more middle of the pecking order. And I just find it really interesting that the hens have their own rules and it really doesn't matter basically who's getting banged the most by Pepper Jack. That has no bearing on their status at all. So that's been very interesting to figure out. In special needs coop news, um, Squeak is still doing really, really well. She seems to have recovered from whatever made her so sick, and I'm incredibly grateful. Agatha, I decided to take her off her pain meds. So I was giving them to her mostly out of habit, and I wanted to see if she still really needed them. And so far, so good. So it seems like Late spring through summer is really the only time where she doesn't need the pain meds. In the fall, when she's molting, she definitely needs them. Winter is hard on her because she has arthritic joints. And then early spring, when her reproductive tract is trying to come back online, that also seems to be a period of pain for her. But right now, she seems to be quite comfortable without that additional support. So I'm going to keep this going. But of course, I'm keeping a super close eye on her. And I'll keep you all updated on her progress. Now, before I move on to my next topic, I wanted to just share something that I recently learned about chickens and rescue groups in my area. So I've been on Facebook community groups a little bit more lately. I'm not entirely sure why, but anyway. And one of the things I learned through one of my local poultry groups is there are two rescue groups that take in chicks and ducklings from feed stores. So every year when we have all these cute little babies come into like Tractor Supply and Rural King and other kind of feed stores, There's a lot that don't end up on display or that have to be pulled off because of poor health. And these rescues have identified that and they've set up relationships with these stores. And when there's a baby that needs additional support that the store can't or is unwilling to provide, the rescues take and rehabilitate these babies. They do their best to get them in good shape. And then once they are older, they adopt them out to experience loving homes. Now, this to me is absolutely wonderful. I was aware that this there's a number of babies that die every year at stores because of lack of appropriate vet care. And I've heard of individuals who you know form good relationships with their local store and can help whenever they can but to have sort of this concerted effort by rescue groups I really think is absolutely fantastic and I reached out to one of the owners to find out if there's any way that I can volunteer in future. So I'm going to drop the links to both of their Facebook pages in the episode description and on my website. One of the groups is called Good Sprout Rescue and the other is called Fowl, as in F-O-W-L, Fowl Play Rescue. And of course, these are local to me, so they're in Northeast Ohio. But it's a good idea, if this is something that might interest you, to go onto Facebook or another form of social media like Instagram and see if your state or your county has a similar group. I think it's a really wonderful idea. Maybe if you don't find one, this might be something that you would be interested in doing. So go to those pages, check it out. If you are local to me, I hope that you will reach out to them either to adopt or to support them in any way that you can. And let's move on to the main topic of this episode. So if you follow me on Instagram, you'll have seen that within the past two weeks, I took in a guinea fowl hen, lost her, found her, and then rehomed her. And so that leads me to the title of this episode, The Adventures of Ginny the Guinea Fowl Hen. It sounds like a children's book, doesn't it? So here's the story. A friend of mine lives just over an hour away, 
She has a good-sized property with a flock of chickens that she keeps penned up in a really snazzy, predator-proof run that her husband built her. And the coop that goes with it is equally impressive. She is a very lucky duck. And they keep the chickens confined despite the size of their property because of predators in the area. So one day she hears this really odd noise and she looks outside to find a weird bird desperately trying to get into the run with her chickens. Now, my friend is a very interesting lady, and she has spent most of her adult life working at zoos, including hands-on animal care jobs, which is the dream for so many of us, really. So she immediately recognises that this weird-looking bird is actually a guinea fowl of some type. And initially, she just lets the guinea alone. She lets it be, assuming that it's eventually going to return home. But it stayed on her property. It continued trying to get in with the chickens. And she realized that we had a pretty cold night ahead. And she became concerned that it would either freeze to death because it was all alone or it would be eaten by a coyote. So my friend decided to risk it and she let this bird into her coop and run. And the bird immediately made itself at home. Now, my friend assumed this guinea was a hen and it turns out that she was right. So her daughter, who, side note, is one of the cutest children in the world, and generally speaking, I don't like being around children, (laughs) decided to name this guinea Ginny. Ginny the guinea. It's very catchy. Ginny integrated extremely well with the chickens. There was absolutely no fighting. There was no sort of stress on either side, and things started to progress as normal. However, guineas are extremely noisy. They have a strident, rusty door sounding cool and they vocalise constantly. It turns out that my friend's coop and run is positioned in such a way that it is right by their bedroom window. And they were being woken up every single day at 5am by this incessant piercing noise. It would continue throughout the day and then when they were curling up into bed at night it was also going so after about a week of this my friend's husband was the first to break and he asked her to rehome Ginny and my friend was absolutely ready to agree at that point because she couldn't stand the sound either now when my friend asked me if I wanted Ginny I told her upfront that I would give her a shot, but I might end up rehoming her if it didn't work out because I knew that guineas are infamous for their very loud vocalizations. And my friend, being my friend, was completely upfront about the fact that they were rehoming her because they couldn't bear the noise anymore. So one Friday, I excitedly made the hour and a bit drive out to collect my very first guinea fowl hen. And it was actually a really nice, straightforward drive that ended in this beautiful rural and wooded area. But I didn't really get to enjoy it because it was absolutely bucketing it down the whole drive there and back, actually. I literally got five minutes away from my house, drove right into the storm, and it continued up until I pulled into my friend's driveway when the rain eased off to a drizzle. So we were only a little damp by the time that we caught Ginny and loaded her into the crate in my car. After hanging out for a little bit and having a chat about Ginny and anything I might know, I stopped for coffee at this incredibly adorable small village and then we headed out to the homestead. So back home, what I decided to do was I was going to put Ginny in the predator-proof chicken run of the big flock, but I wasn't going to allow the chickens access to it. I put a covered roost area in there so that she would be secure and she would feel enclosed at night. And the chickens were given access to their coop during the day. The coop has one of those double door designs, like a stable door. And so I would open the lower door to let them out. I would prop it open during the day and they could free range until it was bedtime. Now, after a few days of this, where every bird had had the chance to kind of get a good look at each other through the run, I would let two to three of the hens into the run with Ginny during the day. And then I would watch to see how things went. Now, what was interesting to me was that the chickens were much more upset about Ginny than she was. 
Ginny immediately accepted the chickens as part of her new flock. She had arrived at my friend's house and tried to get into the run, as I said, and then she'd lived really peacefully with them until I picked her up. So I had anticipated that it would be a smooth transition and largely it was. Ginny really, really wanted to be with them and she would call incessantly if the flock went out of her sight from where she was confined in the run. Even when she had a few chickens to hang out with, she really, really wanted the whole flock to be visible to her at the same time. And so I saw this as a sign that Ginny was bonding to my chickens. And so after a few days of living with a couple of hens in the run during the day, but being alone at night, I let Ginny have access to the coop at night and found her roosting with them in the morning everyone seemed to be quite content and so I decided that it would be the day that I would let her roam with the flock on the property. Big mistake. But before I get into Ginny's runaway adventure I want to tell you a little bit about guinea fowl calls. So the hens make a very distinctive rusty door call that some people say sounds a bit like buckwheat or buckwheat while others say it's more like a come back come back and I feel like it's the come back sound. I have a YouTube video here I don't know if my microphone is going to pick up the sound but let's see what happens. Okay that actually worked pretty well so I'm going to leave that in. Okay so That's the sound, but imagine it about twice as loud in real life. And also, as you can probably tell from hearing that, there's no variation in tone or pitch. So it's the same noise repeated over and over and over again for minutes at a time all day long. And it just really started to wear at me and my husband. Now, at first, I assumed that it was particularly bad because she couldn't follow the flock around and she would get so upset when they moved out of her sight. So to me, it made perfect sense that after this period of bonding, letting her out would be a deciding factor in whether we kept her or not, because either she'd stop being quite so noisy once she was with the flock Or she'd still be a noisy pain in the butt and we would just rehome her to someone used to guineas with guinea experience and hopefully with a flock of guineas of their own that she could be with. And so with all of this perfectly sensible reasoning, I decided to let her out. At first, Ginny hung out with the flock and I watched them for a bit. And I'll be honest, the chickens weren't great with her. So the chickens seemed to accept her and they didn't go after her the way that they would with another hen but they didn't want to share with her if they found something that was delicious they would try and chase her off a little bit and she's very skittish so she would you know they could just look at her the wrong way and she kind of run off and then circle back but generally speaking things were going well and she was hanging out with them and then she just looked up looked around her and I felt like I could almost see something break in her tiny tiny brain and she just started running up and down the fence line frantically calling at the top of her lungs it was really bizarre behavior she didn't do this at all when she was inside the run so I had no idea what was going on in her tiny empty head And every time she did this, I would go out and I would speak to her and basically be like, Ginny, what is going on with you? And oddly, she would stop calling and she'd sort of start grubbing around and foraging and all that sort of stuff. Once I left her alone, she'd stop crying. Oh, I'm sorry. She would start crying again and stop foraging. And then she would start running up and down again. So I was thinking, is it possible that she's actually bonded to people. So she's very wary of humans, like all guineas tend to be. But if she had been hand-raised, I started to ask if, did she feel safe with me? And 
I don't really know the answer to this question because after a few hours of running and calling and acting crazy, I couldn't bear it anymore. The noise was even worse than usual. It was driving me crazy. I couldn't focus on work. So I tried to lure her back into the coop and the run and I got so close to it. And then she just took off down the side of the property and started doing her fence running again. So I decided I'd had enough with her. I needed a break. I was just going to let her be weird. Maybe 15 minutes later, I'm inside the house and I hear her calling from the front of the property. So I go outside and she had flown over the fence that I put up to keep my chickens away from the front yard. And she was now standing on the waterfall feature of our little pond, calling at the top of her lungs. So I try to shoo her back around to the property so she could be with her chickens. And she literally looked at me, looked at my driveway and then booked it away from me. So she started running with what can only be described as a single-minded purpose. This girl was not going to stop. She charged down my driveway, ran across the road, into my neighbor's yard, and then just kept on going. I chased her as far as I could. I trespassed on at least five different neighbor's properties, and I came real close to grabbing her a couple of times, but ultimately she was able to ditch me when she disappeared under under a thorned underbrush area and there was just no way I was going to get through it. Ginny was gone and I was guinealess once again. Now, full confession here, I had decided to rehome her before she ran away. And I think that made me feel especially guilty once she ran off. Uh, I said that letting her out would be the deciding factor. And with her crazy behavior of running up and down the fence and being even louder than usual, I just decided that guineas were not for me. And I had started the process of finding her a really good home. So the fact that she ran off right as I'm having these thoughts made me feel like Somehow she knew she was unwanted and she was off to find greener pastures. And to be completely honest, I felt sick thinking of how I was going to have to tell my friend that I'd lost Ginny. And even worse than this, she would then tell her adorable, big hearted daughter that I had lost her beloved Ginny the Guinea. Clearly, I was some kind of Guinea hating monster. (laughs) But in all seriousness, I did genuinely feel kind of sick about it. Um, You probably know that I take my animal care duties extremely seriously. In my mind, I had assumed full responsibility for Ginny. And instead of keeping her safe, I had created a situation that allowed her to run away. And it didn't really matter to me that I knew this was an issue with guinea fowl. I knew that even if you raise them from the egg, they can sometimes run away. None of that matters because I'd committed to care for this animal and I'd totally blown it. So there were some tears, I will confess, and then I made a plan. First thing I did is I told my friend what happened and I was super relieved by how gracious she was about it. That really sort of helped me take the pressure off myself a bit, stop feeling sorry for myself, stop feeling guilty. So I felt a lot better knowing that I wasn't now enemy number one with her. And then the second thing I did is I went back on Nextdoor, which is not really an app that I use anymore because it's just kind of the same post over and over again. But it's useful in these instances where you can post a lost ad. And I didn't really expect anything to come of that ad, but I figured it was worth a shot. Well, on Thursday night, my neighbour across the way from me sends me a text and it's a picture of Ginny. Someone in a Facebook group that she's a part of had posted asking whether anyone knew if this bird belonged to someone. And apparently Ginny was not only in their yard, but she was actually coming up to their back door and acting as if she wanted them to let them into her house. Now, I wasn't in that Facebook group and joining it is moderated. So my neighbor played intermediary for me and she got the information of the person with Ginny in the yard and got the okay for me to go over there. And at this point, it's getting kind of late. It's going to be dark soon, so we have to move fast. So I grab a cat carrier, 
a blanket, my husband, and at his suggestion, a roll of deer netting. And we drive the two roads down to this neighbor's house. And it's exactly in the direction that Ginny had been running. I don't think she went very far. She just headed in a straight line down. Now, this neighbor actually came out to meet us and she had blankets and she was ready to help us catch Ginny. Now, in the end, it took four of us, three adults and a teenager, plus the blankets and the netting to catch Ginny the guinea. Guineas are fast and they're agile. So chasing her down really wasn't an option, although my husband did try super hard and completely wiped out in the mud at one point doing this. I honestly think he was having some of the most fun that he's had in years. (laughs) So what we had to do is we had to pen her in using the netting and the blankets and ultimately kind of throw the net over her. And my husband was the one who made the final dive and capture. We'd made other attempts and she kept on getting loose. He managed to just grab her. But we had a problem. Ginny was not exactly tangled, but ensconced in the netting in such a way that we couldn't extract her without risking her getting away from us. And since she wasn't being held in a restricted position or an unhealthy position we decided to just put her with the netting into the carrier and because there was so much netting we basically were carrying the cat carrier with Ginny shoved inside and then a big long trail of netting hanging out like the train of a wedding dress it was absolutely ridiculous so there we are out of breath covered in mud and awkwardly carrying this cat carrier and giant spill of netting out of this neighbor's yard and into the car. On my way out of this situation, I thanked the neighbor profusely and I promised her a jar of honey for all her help and I was very happy to be able to drop it off the next day. But back to Ginny. So we make this short ride home in the car with my husband kind of awkwardly holding the carrier and the netting spilling everywhere around him and we carried all of this mess through the garden into the chicken run and only when the door was firmly closed behind us did we let Jenny out and untangle her from all this netting Now, she was completely unharmed, but extremely mad. It was also pitch black at this point. So all we had was the light on my cell phone to check her over and make sure that she definitely was moving okay. There was no sign of injury. Everything was good. And it was. So we troop back into the house. We come in through the back door. And the first thing we do is we throw off our muddy clothes. We are covered in mud. My husband got the worst of it. Uh, he's a biologist and he has spent a good chunk of his career in the field racing after animals. And I think when faced with this very good little escape artist that he just had to go full tilt after her and face that epic slide in the mud. So he was coated head to toe in mud. Now, He was so coated in mud that when I got in the car the next day, I found the passenger seat, the inner door and the middle console covered in streaks of mud (laughs) that had to be wiped down and cleaned up. So we're home. It's nighttime. We've stripped off all the mud and I realised something. My washing machine is broken. (laughs) Um, it'd been broken for a little while and we had yet to call the repairman. So now I have this huge pile of muddy clothes and I just said, screw it. So I threw it all in the laundry room where I didn't have to think about it. And I just told myself that I would call the repairman in the morning. So we, we finally have demudded ourselves. We're in clean clothes and I immediately reach out to a lady who I'd previously discussed giving Ginny to. She has experience with guineas and she's actually currently raising a baby whose mother had been predated suddenly during one night. And this baby has really imprinted on her to the point where it follows her everywhere. It hates to be away from her. So we were sort of hoping that Ginny might be able to act as a foster mother. She also has a male guinea who would definitely benefit from a companion. So it seemed like this would be a really good fit. And we made plans to meet the following day because I was 
done with Ginny the Guinea and I needed her to be away from me (laughs) so that I would no longer be stressed. So ultimately, that's how I ended up going straight from my second COVID vaccine, yay immunity, to a Walmart parking lot, parking lot, sorry, to hand over Ginny the Guinea to her new person. That afternoon, I was sent a photo of Ginny with the baby and I was told that the introduction was going extremely well. So let's all cross our fingers and toes and hope that Ginny finds this home worthy of her and she doesn't run off at the first possible opportunity. Any chance anyone out there is an artist and wants to collaborate on a children's book? I feel like Ginny the Guinea and Sam the Wayward Turkey would be really great kids stories, so hit me up. (laughs) But let's move on a little bit and talk about some basic guinea fowl facts. Guineas are native to Africa, but they're kept worldwide on farms and homesteads with growing popularity, in a large part due to their absolutely voracious appetite for ticks and other insect pests that can plague our gardens and homes. As a member of the order Galliforms, they can mate with chickens, but their offspring are sterile. And there's actually a number of different types of guinea fowl, with three being the most commonly seen in captivity. The helmeted guinea fowl is probably by far the most common, and that's what Ginny is. The crested guinea fowl and the very vibrantly coloured vulturine guinea fowl, which is my personal favourite purely based on how absolutely awesome it looks. And I'll put a picture on the blog. Guineas are voracious eaters, as I said, and excellent foragers, and they do not do well with confinement. They need to roam. And in part, this is because their primary diet consists of insects, grubs, seeds, and vegetation, but they will willingly eat snakes, frogs, smaller birds, I'm going to guess, basically anything they can get their little mouths around. Oh, mice, baby rats, all that kind of stuff. They will eat anything. In captivity, they'll also graze on chicken feed, particularly if the protein levels are between 16 and 18%. And they do like chicken scratch, grain and treats like oats, dried mealworms or grublies, which are black soldier fly larvae. Guinea fowl are monogamous with pairs mating for life. Although polygamous groups of one male to multiple females is seen in captivity, especially with the common helmeted guinea. But you can keep pairs of guineas together in a flock and the males seem to do okay as long as they have their own hen. Guineas are ground nesters. Although having said that, many owners will report them roosting in trees or even on top of buildings. I was reading a blog where her guineas like to sleep literally on top of their house. Now, these striking birds look kind of like a partridge, but with featherless heads and necks. Their feathers are usually a grey-blue colour with white speckles, although there are different colour varieties that have been bred in captivity, including solid white specimens with purple heads and necks that are incredibly striking. Now, one fun thing about guineas is that you can sex them as adults by their calls. So a female, the hen, will make the infamous buckwheat or come back call, while the male or cock will make a kind of chi-chi-chi-chi call. Guineas range in height from 16 to 28 inches and weigh between 1.3 to 3.5 pounds with the hens tending to be a little larger than the males, possibly due to their reproductive system requiring more space. Having said that, I did see a few sources that claimed the opposite, that the males would be larger. And my assumption is that this is probably going to depend on the type of guinea fowl. So perhaps the vulturine guineas have larger males and the helmeted guineas have larger females. I couldn't narrow it down. I've also seen mixed reports on whether guineas are good mothers. Some insist that they are and others say that they're not. One thing that everyone agrees on is that it starts out very well with the hens. They will sit diligently on their eggs and they're very dedicated to the nest. But once the babies, called keats, 
start to hatch and start to move around, the hen quickly goes back to her roaming and foraging. And because guineas do move so fast and travel quite far, they often end up leaving the vulnerable babies behind. Keats are much like any kind of baby poultry, whether it's turkey, chicken or duck, they do require adequate heat to survive, much higher temperatures than what the adults need. So it's really not uncommon to find chilled or even dead Keats around the nest area because they just couldn't keep up with mama and they had no way of keeping themselves warm. In captivity, it seems like a lot of keepers recommend incubating the eggs and then raising the keeps yourself to ensure survival and then introducing them to the flock when they're large enough to be outside and to keep their own body temperature. In the wild, males have been observed helping to take care of the keats and it seems as if the communal or kind of flock driven living of guineas does help foster an environment that can make it so that multiple guineas are assisting in raising the offspring, even if an individual hen is not a particularly attentive mother. So it's entirely possible that a well-balanced flock in captivity will effectively raise their own young, but do be prepared to bring the keats inside just in case. As ground roosting birds, guineas like to make their nests in hidden areas with twigs, under brush, etc. It's likely that your hens will set up sneaky nests around your property, but keeping them confined to the coop for at least a week is said to help teach them to lay inside, although there's no real guarantee when it comes to guineas. Now, they are territorial birds and they'll alert you to danger and they'll also fight fiercely to protect their territory. So when you keep them alongside other poultry, they'll alert long before a rooster or a drake will, which makes them a really handy watchdog for your homestead or farm. Guinea hens lay a respectable 100, 100 or so eggs a year, so they're not prolific, but they're not a slouch either. Now, these eggs are smaller than the average chicken egg with much harder shells, but they're also higher in protein and fats. Some people say that they taste the same as a chicken egg, while others say that they're richer and creamier in taste, so this could be a fun addition to your diet. Guineas are capable of flight and they're actually very strong flyers that can often be found in trees, on fences, on the roof of the coop or on the roof of your house. Clipping their wings though it's not recommended because they do thrive when allowed to free range and clipping will make it easier for predators to pick them off. They do rely on flight as a way of evading predation. And what's really interesting about guineas is that they're not truly domesticated like chickens. And by this, what I mean is that they still act like wild fowl, which means that they're wary of people, they're independent, and they're really, really hard to catch. These are not hand-tame, snuggly birds. They are happiest when they're with other guineas and they will roam great distances. Even if you raise your guineas from literally the egg, there is always a chance they will one day decide to run away. Now, some tips that I found for keeping them at home include keeping them confined to a coop and a secure run for at least six weeks or releasing one guinea at a time because their desire to stay with the flock will keep them close to their confined companions so that they will return in the evening for you to put them back into the coop. You can also train them to return to the coop using high value treats that you offer at the same time each day. So they know to get that delicious snack, they need to be by the coop. But from everything I've read, even if you do everything right, one day your flock might just take off to the woods never to be seen again. It seems to be a risk that guinea keepers are just willing to take in order to own this very interesting, beautiful, unique looking bird. So let's consider the cons of guinea fowl. They're flighty, prone to running away. They like to hide their nests, which means hiding their eggs. They are extremely noisy and annoying and they're hard to catch or handle, which means that if they do need vet care, it's going to be difficult getting them to the vet. 
But some pros of guineas include rich, delicious eggs. They're very interesting to watch. They will rapidly reduce insect pests on your property, including lime carrying ticks. They're independent. They're long lived, 10 to 15 years. And they're not prone to disease or illness, especially when compared to our poor chickens that literally have something called sudden death syndrome. And they can also double as a source of lean meat. After my experience with Ginny the Guinea, I am firmly in the no thank you camp when it comes to guinea fowl. But even after hearing about my trials with this species, maybe this is something that is actually catching your interest. If it is, I do really recommend looking into guinea fowl. I think with a large enough property, so they're far enough away from your house that you can't hear them as easily, and the right kind of setup, I do think these could be an extremely rewarding bird to keep. And if anyone listening has guineas and wants to share their experience, please, please drop me a comment, send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. Um, I know there are people out there who love this bird. Every single season, I see people in my local community asking about keats or asking about additional hens. There are clearly guinea fowl lovers out there. I just don't think I'm ever going to be one. And that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed my ramblings about Ginny's adventures. (laughs) For my next episode, I will be reviewing a top bar hive, which is made by Gold Star Honeybees, as well as going into a bit more detail about how I installed a package into it. And I'm going to cover some top bar beekeeping basics uh, from the book that Gold Star Honeybees owner has written. And then I'm also going to have a giveaway for a book on the subject of top bar beekeeping. So keep an eye out for that episode. This is the part of the podcast where I thank you all so much for listening and we'll then move on to my personal news. For anyone who doesn't want to hear about potential mental health or physical health, issues this would be the time for you to switch off and I say thank you for listening and I hope you will join me again in two weeks if you stuck around you don't mind listening to me blather on about myself (laughs) so my really big news is that I got my second COVID vaccine yay which means that within about two weeks I will be considered to be at peak immunity and it means that I can do things like start swimming again and that's going to be really wonderful for my mental health and my physical health because I do really want to get back to a enjoyable form of regular exercise so that I can shift my pandemic weight because those 10 pounds are kind of getting me down lately and I could do with finding something that I actually enjoy. Sitting on my exercise bike is just not as fun as swimming. So I'm really, really looking forward to that. I actually have the day in my calendar. It just says, you can swim again. And I can't wait for that. My other news is that I finally got to see a new psychiatrist. And, you know, your your first appointment with a psychiatrist is always interesting because if you're anything like me, you basically have to try and sum up a lifetime of history in an hour, which isn't possible, but we covered the basics. And my biggest concern that I wanted a new opinion on was that I have been on a lot of antidepressants in my life and they tend to work really, really well for one to two, sometimes three years. And then I will start getting side effects that outweigh the benefits or they just seem to stop working and I start getting more depressive episodes and having a much harder time. So we kind of covered that and she is the first person who's ever said to me that it is possible that I have treatment resistant depression. However, What she thinks is that I possibly have a secondary condition that isn't being addressed. And with a little extra help in that area, I might find that my antidepressants are more effective. So some things we talked about were either a mood stabilizer or an anti-anxiety. And we both agreed that an anti-anxiety 
medication would probably be the best bet. So I know I have anxiety. It used to be really bad. And I think because it hasn't been so bad in a while, I don't really think about it as needing to be addressed. But lately it has been worse. One thing I can say is that for the last few years I've always felt that time is sort of breathing down my neck I never have enough time and it doesn't matter that I set my own schedule it doesn't matter that I'm not really beholden to anyone but myself I can't sit still I'm always having to do things and I feel like I'm never getting enough done and I'm constantly under stress about it it's it's classic anxiety and as a result we decided to put me on a daily anti-anxiety medication So I've been on that for about a week and I will say that I do think it's working because my brain doesn't feel as busy so I'm not constantly thinking about everything that has to be done, every possible situation, every possible outcome. I'm not really thinking about that as much but I will say right now I'm not feeling super positive (laughs) because I know I'm in the adjustment phase so we're giving it a month And then I will talk to her about my experience and we'll decide what to do from there, like whether to change the dosage or go to a different one or get rid of it altogether or whatever. But where I am right now after just a week in is I'm realizing that my anxiety is what motivates me to get a lot of things done. And now that I don't have this sense of doom or this sense of you have to do it or else, I'm really struggling to motivate myself. So it's almost like I'm feeling that lack of motivation that comes with depression really keenly. And so I think I'm trying to adjust to what life is like without that feeling. And I thought it would be overwhelmingly positive, but instead I'm finding this downside of I just... I can't use fear to motivate myself anymore and I have to find that motivation in other ways and today in particular that has really been a struggle but I'm gonna stick this out I'm gonna see what happens and fingers crossed I'm gonna find a balance that I have been missing in my life so that's where I am um has anyone out there had experience doing something like this like a daily anti-anxiety on top of an antidepressant if you have and you want to share hit me up um you can email me you can comment on instagram or on facebook you can send me a private message whatever but i would like to hear from you if you're willing to share um obviously you know it's totally okay if you don't want to not everyone just natters on on a podcast (laughs) so yeah that's where I am fingers crossed things will get better um we'll just have to see so that's it um I hope you will join me again in two weeks I hope you are taking care of yourselves I hope most of you have been vaccinated have got it scheduled that you're looking forward to immunity and getting to go to the gym again and traveling and maybe seeing family members that you haven't been able to see that would be really really nice I do admit that I am looking forward to the holidays this year because hopefully we're not all going to be social distancing like we've had to so that is definitely something to look forward to and yeah just keep wearing your mask keep washing your hands just be safe out there and um, take care of yourself it's so important so until next time hug your hands, and then wash your hands. Thank you so much for listening. I will be back in two weeks. Bye-bye.